0: Welcome to Alumni Voices, a podcast from the University of Oxford. I'm Guy Colander and every month I speak to a former Oxford student about their memories of their alma mater, the impact of their studies and their career. For this episode I'm delighted to be joined by David Miliband, the President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, headquartered in New York. He is back in Oxford to discuss the global refugee crisis Before leading the IRC, David Miliband was a prominent Labour politician in the UK, serving as both Foreign Secretary and Environment Secretary during a distinguished political career. And of course, Oxford played its part in his political development as he gained a first-class degree in PPE, Philosophy, Politics and Economics, from Corpus Christi College. David Miliband, thank
1: you very much for agreeing to share your story. Thank you, Guy. I'm bit worried now how much you're going to get out of me about (laughs) my student days. Well we'll start off with maybe uh, not the whole story.
0: Well indeed indeed. So you'll be speaking at an Oxford Martin school lecture about the global refugee crisis. Refugee numbers now stand at a record high with the UN estimating that 65 million people worldwide have been displaced from their homes.
1: What is causing this unprecedented crisis? Well I think that It is unprecedented in two senses, this crisis. First of all, the numbers are larger than since records began. Uh, 25 million refugees and asylum seekers, 40 million internally displaced uh, people. But not just the size of the crisis gives it this record-breaking number, uh, but the nature of the crisis itself. Above all, the fact that it's a long-term crisis, not a short-term crisis. I'll point out today that refugees who are displaced from their homes from at least five years up spending decades out of their own country not just years Um, it's unprecedented also to have 60% of refugees in urban areas not in camps because the old model of refugee hosting has broken down in part because of the numbers and in respect of your question as to why it happens there are really uh, three points i would make one is that there are a growing number of states around the world who are enabled which are unable to meet the basic needs of their citizens, or hold political or ethnic or religious difference within peaceful boundaries. Uh, South Sudan tragically is a poster child for that case study. Uh, Secondly, the international political system is weaker and more divided than any time since the Second World War. Um, There are 49 intra-state wars, civil wars going on at the moment. That's an unprecedented number, partly reflecting the weakness of the international system. And thirdly, and difficult to talk about and uh, needs to be addressed with some humility, It's striking that significant parts of the Islamic world are undergoing profound uh, crises of modernity, crises of theology, crises of governance. And uh, one evidence of that is that the International Rescue Committee, which was founded by Albert Einstein in 1933 to rescue Jews from Europe, today 40-45% of our work is in Muslim-majority countries. And so I think those would be three important reasons. Uh, Just a final coda, none of those reasons are short-term. And that's why I think the global refugee crisis is here to stay, and we need to think of different ways of dealing with it.
0: And you've witnessed the dire conditions faced by refugees. What is the human and economic cost of such suffering?
1: Well, we're meeting on a day when the United Nations has declared that there are four uh, potential famines around the world, the first famine since 2000. Uh, What's remarkable about the situation in Yemen, in northeast Nigeria, um, in Somalia. What's remarkable uh, about what's going on in those uh, places is that they are all the people there in these parts of those countries are uh, victims of man-made disaster, of political uh, conflict. And the human toll is unspeakable because those who survive, and tragically increasing numbers don't, but those who do, are utterly traumatised in part by their own experience, and in part by the loss of their Loved ones, and it does mark people for life. The lucky ones escape uh, to neighboring states that are relatively open, countries like Uganda, countries like Kenya, countries like Lebanon and Jordan, Turkey, Um, and the very lucky few make it to the west. And how is the IRC responding to this humanitarian challenge? We're an unusual agency, we're both an international humanitarian aid agency with 13,000 staff and 10,000 volunteers in 30 countries around the world, working in war zones, fragile states and refugee transit routes, places like Greece, Uh, but we're also a refugee resettlement agency in the US and so we are responding by trying to up our game, always get better at what we do, but also to be effective advocates from our own experience for the plight of the people uh, we're trying to help and for the ways of helping them. It's fair to say that uh, the advocacy for those in greatest need is not as easy as it might seem. Uh, The uh, Trump and other uh, revolutions, political revolutions that are underway, um, have, as part of their uh, drive, um, a pretty severe crackdown on the entry of refugees into. Western countries. It's most true we're meeting in the week of the revised executive order that will slash America's refugee numbers from about 100,000 to at least 50,000 a year to, to, to a maximum of 50,000 a year. And so we, we try to be operational leaders, but also thought leaders of the humanitarian sector. And the refugee crisis has polarised the media
0: and political opinion. Debates are skewed by myths and fears. What overview are you able to share, particularly about how different countries in the West are responding to the crisis?
1: Well, of course, the biggest myth is that the West is bearing the greatest load. I mean, 85% of the world's refugees are in countries like Kenya and Turkey and Jordan and uh, Pakistan, not in countries like Britain or the U.S. And the polarisation, I think it's a very good word to use, is right, sometimes people say backlash, but that suggests it's only one way. I mean, the polarisation is that for every person who's fearful of a refugee, uh, there's another person who says, well, I want to stand up for what I believe to be civilised values of openness and empathy. And I mean, it's interesting when you think about it historically. In 1941, Einstein wrote to Eleanor Roosevelt asking her to uh, plead with the president to let let more Jews come into America. And he said, "No, I can't do it because the politics is impossible." And so there are there is a historic. In fact, the number of the percentage of Americans who oppose Muslim entry today is more or less the same as the percentage who opposed Jewish entry in 1938, 39. So uh, we're not in virgin territory when it comes to the political dilemma and it's important to be open about it. What approaches can help solve all these difficult challenges? Well the best obviously is if we were better at peace making, peace building, and peacekeeping and that deserves a whole podcast of its own. I think really it's a, a massive issue that in a time when there are relatively few in fact zero wars between states there should be so many wars within states and that is the most profound thing that we can do. I think the next thing we can do is recognize that states that are hosting the large preponderance of refugees need enormous help because they are delivering a global public good uh, and they get very little help I and mean, until this year until last year the world bank didn't take the number of refugees into account in determining which countries it worked in uh, and then the third thing that's important i think is that refugee resettlement for, for a minority a small minority uh, is an important part of the repertoire of policy responses it's got a substantive benefit remember Steve Jobs' father was a Syrian refugee in the United States, so there's a substantive benefit. Individuals, extraordinary individuals turn out to do amazing things. Madeleine mm-hmm. Albright was a refugee in uh, the US. Uh, but it's also the case that symbolically it's a show of solidarity with the countries that are bearing the greatest load. And you also bring a very personal perspective to the refugee problem, being the son of refugees. Has this influenced your approach? Yes, I think it must, uh, really. And my dad was a refugee from uh, Belgium in 1940. My mum was a refugee from Poland in 1946, survived the Bible war in Poland. And so uh, I, you know, I don't want to over uh, um, dramatize it because it wouldn't be right, but at some level I feel I'm uh, closing a circle or contributing to a closing circle by doing uh, my own part in trying to help people who are not descendants of my own family in a literal sense, but in a way are undergoing some of the same trauma that uh, my family or my, uh, my my parents and grandparents went through. Now let's discuss your student days at Oxford. What did you gain from your study of PPE
0: in the 1980s?
1: I really was uh, taught to think, and to think in a logical way. I mean, some people may dispute that there is any logic at all in the the views that I I hold or the way I deduce them, but uh, to the extent that there is any logic or um, uh, coherence to my thinking, I think I have to thank the discipline of twice-a-week tutorials, twice-a-week essays, uh, the ghastly <laughs> finals. It, it, it forced me to uh, learn how to present an argument. It was a, it was quite a sharp climb, but I think that's the greatest credit I can give to the university. And you also became heavily involved in student politics.
0: Could you tell us more about that? very. I
1: mean, I was I I, um, I became president of the junior common room, uh, which was a, a, a relatively genteel form of uh, politics. Um, I was obviously a member of the Labour Club, or maybe not obviously, but I, I was a member of the Labour Club. Um, I basically missed the 87 general election because I was doing my finals. Right, right. So it was, I wasn't at Oxford during... The most seminal political event was not a general election while I was here. It was a. It was the miners' strike, actually, which was a, a, a tragic a tragic episode in the history of um, British Labour, both capital L and lowercase l. Uh, but um, I, I, uh, I think I learned a bit about... Uh, Political scene, and I suppose it helped me um, prepare for the things that came later.
0: And aside from your your studies and uh, student politics, what else kept you busy during your student days? Um, I was
1: very bad, but very enthusiastic at sport. Uh, the because I went to Corpus Christi, which, as you know, is a relatively small college. The anyone with the ability to run in any direction, with, with <laughs> wherever the ball was, was immediately in the football team frankly the cricket team, the pool team, you name it. Uh, so I remember once that the, the, the height of the review of my performance was that I showed great enthusiasm but complete ignorance of the offside law. So I, I think that um, I was, I was uh, pretty uh, sporty and that, um, so work, rest and play I suppose was the name of the game. And on that note, what advice do you have for prospective students and current students at Oxford? Well, I think to enjoy themselves. I, I mean, maybe this is bad advice. I, I played cricket on the, in between, in, on the Saturday in between my finals on the grounds that it was better to uh, keep your keep your brain aerated before my last two papers. Maybe that wasn't... I didn't actually get great grades on my last two papers, but I think to enjoy it, to remember... I remember when I first uh, went to the Corpus Cricket ground and saw the, the, the... which is over the bridge near the railway line, and uh, I just thought, my you're lucky to be here and when I first went into the Corpus Library I thought my my god I'm lucky to be here I don't think people should go around with a great sense of guilt about uh, about it but they should recognize what a tremendous privilege it is to be an extraordinary university like this and make the most of it definitely well make the most of it is a a very you know if if you if you waste your time then you don't deserve it so I think um, really really make the most of it and I think that you probably, I didn't, I'm not sure I realised it at the time but I was surrounded by some pretty extraordinary students I kept some really good friends and you, you don't realise how lucky you are to be in that sort of atmosphere I think that the professors were probably better than I realised And after Oxford, your rise in UK politics
0: was meteoric. You soon became the head of policy at number 10 under Tony Blair, then joined Parliament as a Labour MP for South Shields in 2001. You later assumed one of the highest offices of state, becoming Foreign Secretary at only 43. What was your proudest achievement in
1: politics? I think that in politics, you've always got to ask yourself, what am I going to do, not just what am I going to be? And in every uh, job, I tried to do something significant. I was Schools Minister for three years. And I was really proud of the way we reformed the way the teaching profession worked, um, especially with the relationship between teachers and associate teachers, paraprofessionals. Uh, We launched an extraordinary uh, school building program, uh, which uh, transformed my own constituency's schools. Um, And so I was proud of that. As Environment Secretary, in 2006, we took the decision to uh, legislate for the world's first legally binding emissions reduction commitments. Uh, in the climate change bill, and that was a huge thing. And then as Foreign Secretary, it's obviously harder, but there were, uh, there, there were, there were big things. Um, the design of a political settlement for Afghanistan, which tragically never came to fruition. Um, there, were, there were great efforts that ended in failure, like the attempt to save people caught in the end of the Sri Lankan Civil War in the north of the country in Jaffna. I'll never forget going to Jaffna with, with Krishna and with the French Foreign Minister. Um, there were things that went through but haven't quite worked out like the Lisbon Treaty on the European Union which uh, was definitely an achievement to get it through but uh, it hasn't quite worked out we negotiated that was the treaty that uh, allowed for the first time for countries to exit the European Union Uh, little did I ever conceive that the country that would uh, be benefiting from what I I have to say are pretty strict rules uh, under which you leave uh, little did I ever conceive it would be the UK on the receiving end uh, of that uh, so I think that uh, I would pick out those things, really. On behalf of my listeners, I feel I must ask, can we
0: ever expect to return to UK politics? <laughs> That's very nice of you to
1: ask. I've given up giving predictions about my own career uh, prospects or path. Sometimes I get people come to see me at the age of 20 and they say, you know, I'd like your advice on career. And I say, well, I'm still looking for advice and I'm 51. So it, it's, uh, it's difficult to say. What I know is that I'll always try and go to a job that allows me to make the greatest impact on behalf of the things I believe in. And I believe that at the moment I am making more impact than I could anywhere else by leading a large NGO, and I'll do that as long as I think that's where I can make my greatest impact.
0: David Miliband, thank you very much for telling us about your life, your studies, your humanitarian work, and your politics. Thank you very much. For more episodes of Alumni Voices, please visit www.alumni.ox.ac dot uk